Exodus chapter 1 is where we're going to be. I just closed the book on Genesis, put all my notes away. It was like that thick. <laughs> oh, oh, and, and now getting into Exodus, boy, I enjoyed, because I, I had last week off, I studied and all week long, and we're going to have a ball in Exodus. Uh, what, a, what a great book. Let's pray as you turn your Bibles there. Let me thank the Lord. Father, we are grateful we get to gather tonight. We are grateful for the rain. We thank you for it, Lord. But we are very grateful to gather as the church. It's the greatest institution in all of the world. It's one that will never fail. It has perfect leadership because Jesus is the head of it. There's no elections. There's no impeachments. There's none of that. Because our Lord Jesus is the head of the church. And we gather under his headship. We love him. He saved us. He put us in his church. And we praise you for that. So, Lord, we thank you that we could gather on a Wednesday night, rainy and gloomy outside a little bit. But here we are with hearts full of joy, singing tremendous worship songs, reminding ourselves that Jesus paid it all. As Josh told us today, we didn't do anything to inherit this. Jesus did it all. So may we look forward and press on. Lord, open our eyes to your truth now as we look into the book of Exodus. It happened a long time ago, but the truth doesn't change. And neither do you, God. So let us learn great and mighty things about you. In Jesus' name, amen. As you think about the many books of the Old Testament, and I enjoy my Old Testament studies, uh, particularly after I understand, under, came to understand a biblical theology. And what we mean by biblical theology, and, and unfortunately it's not as popular as we'd like to see it, but a biblical theology sees that the Bible's all connected and is connected by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see him as the reigning, ruling one all through the book. And so when you have a biblical theology, when you study the Bible, you can't help but study the book of Exodus and think about Christ. Now I know that might, not be, a, that might be a little bit of change. Maybe you were raised with moralistic sermons. And, and when you went to Sunday school, David was great and Daniel was great. And all those things were that. And you heard those stories and... and, and and yet, as we've grown in our understanding of the Bible, what we teach now is a biblical theology that all of that stuff's pointing to Christ. And if Daniel and David were here and heard you praising them, they would be very upset with you. Do you get that? So the Bible is a story of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it starts in Genesis 1, him as creator, and it works its way through Revelation 22, where he becomes the king of kings and rules forever with us. It is not a book of stories of morals. And we have to be careful of that. And so when we study this, you go, wow, this is good, Lord. I see your son in all of this. But the Old Testament's fun to study because there are some books that are a little stronger than others, right? And you think about the book of Genesis. We just got done with that. Creation, fall, flood, promise, patriarchs, Joseph, gathering of a nation, all that. What a beautiful things we learned. And we learned about us. We learned about our, our flesh and all the things as we went through there. Other books that I look forward to teaching, Deuteronomy, I look forward to teaching the magnificent sermons of Moses that just flow from his heart. I don't know if you've ever taken time just to jump through and look at the sermons of Moses in Deuteronomy. I'm going to get there eventually. You think about Psalms, what a, what a marvelous book where this Psalter, whether David or others, Asaph and others, they stir our soul. They stir the believer's soul as we think about these great psalms down through the ages that we hang on to. You can look at Isaiah, and there's just unparalleled description of the nature and attributes of God and a coming Messiah sent to us in the book of Isaiah. What a great book. Jeremiah, the cost of being a prophet. A difficult, difficult ministry. An invasion of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, all because of sin. And yet God is there preserving a remnant for his son. Daniel is a remarkable details of prophecy. It is so detailed, the liberals can't stand it. They say it can't be written by Daniel. It's impossible, too accurate. But Daniel doesn't want to be known for all of that, he wants to be known for what he wrote about. He wrote about the details of a coming salvation. He wrote about the details of a Savior who will reign and rule, who's Jesus Christ. 
He calls him the ancient of days, the son of man. I mean, it's, it's an amazing book to study. But when we get to Exodus, I think it ranks as well as a very fascinating book to study when you think about all that happens. It brings into fruition all the promises of Genesis. And in those promises of this great nation, we start to see that being formed. One of the things we'll see as we study through it is these most profound meanings of the Lord's name. We, we get words that we haven't heard of him yet given to us. Hebrew names of God that, that mean provision and other things that come along. The, Exodus introduces us to some of those profound names. It brings forth the basic summary of God's law. The law of God begins to be revealed. It is divine instruction. The Lord's tabernacle, the priesthood, all pointing towards Christ. We we see that in the book of Exodus. It highlights the covenant-keeping God and the covenant-breaking man. (laughs) That's important. You have to study that and realize as much as God is a covenant-keeping God, we are a covenant-breaking people. And yet he still saves us. Amen. And so this constant display of God's redemption is on, is on display in the book of Exodus. He redeems, he saves, he pulls people out. This is the theme that we see. And, the point, and it points clearly to Christ over and over throughout the book. The word Exodus itself means to what? Exit or depart. Um, and it's interesting when you study the Hebrew titles of some of the books they, they commonly follow an ancient practice of naming a book after the major theme of it. So Exodus is about this book where God brings out, he exits people out of trapment, slavery, and brings them into his promise. That's soteriology, isn't it? That's what we believe. We were dead in our sins, trapped slaves. The New Testament uses all those terms. And God came and led us out of that. And so we see that in the book of Exodus. The author of the book is who? Did anybody say the Holy Spirit? The author is the Holy Spirit. The human author is Moses. Now, um, there's some debate about that, which is silly, because Exodus chapter 17, verse 14 says that God told Moses to write the book and to recite it to Joseph and the nation. Moses also wrote down what the Lord said after uh, that was, uh, he wrote down what was said after he recorded uh, all that had happened. He wasn't there, so somebody had to record this extraction of Israel from Egypt, he, uh, had to record the giving of the Ten Commandments, all of that. And so there's, there's certain things that are there. Certainly Moses was there at the extraction. He wasn't there at the beginning. If he's, not, he's not born yet as this thing begins to unfold. Now, furthermore, the New Testament says that Moses wrote Exodus. There are several quotations in the New Testament, particularly the book of Mark. We saw one in Mark 7. And it, and it quotes, it quotes uh, the Old Testament quotes Exodus and calls it the book of Moses. And yet, there are, there are liberals. In the last hundred years, these liberal writers have written that say, we don't think it's Moses. Uh, I had a lot of time to study on the history of this, so you have to bear with me a little bit on this. Um, they call these guys J.E. and P. They represent this Javis, Eloist, and Priestess is their terms. They believe they were men from the 10th to the 8th century who, who God told them to wrote the book of Exodus. So they reject the author as Moses. Now, but when, when you study the Bible, when you look at the internal biblical evidence of the Old Testament and the New Testament Together, where God often says the book of Moses, the book of Moses, Jesus himself says those things, and this overwhelming Judeo-Christian understanding that the book is written, we know that the authorship is Moses, it's from him. Now, think also about this, and I don't know how these guys don't deal with this, but Moses himself is the best candidate, humanly speaking, thinking about this. Moses had um, the necessary education He's raised by a Hebrew mother. He's adopted by the daughter of an Egyptian pharaoh. He has this high-level and formal Egyptian schooling. Moses is the main character throughout the story of Exodus, a human character at least. 
but he is also um, divinely uh, directed by the Holy Spirit. God divinely directs him along, whether that's at a burning bush or standing over the waters of the Red Sea. And Moses leads his Israelites out of slavery uh, from Egypt. He himself does that. So there, there's nobody greater than to write this than this man, and so we believe Moses is it. We believe that events of Exodus took, some, took place somewhere between 1500 to 1400 B.C. Now, when it comes to the pharaohs, I don't know how many commentaries and writings and internet stuff I chased down trying to find the lineage of all the pharaohs, and it, and it turns out... And, Finally, one book, when I was finally reading, it says, it's nearly impossible to understand this. I go, I wish I would have read that first. Um, there were so many pharaohs uh, that lived. I think there was over 20-some-odd dynasties of pharaohs that reigned. And what happened often, as I read, that the pharaohs did everything they could to erase the history of the previous pharaohs, which makes it difficult to find who was there. The way they find them is some of the tombs they built that they could not get into. And then they begin to understand those guys a little bit. But each dynasty would attempt to pass on the reign of their deity to the firstborn son. But soon after dynasties would rise, there would be another one to try to take the place. So there's many dynasties that run throughout the times of Egypt. And, and there can be a lot of study done on this. You can look onto it. But there are several pharaohs that didn't have a son that replaced them. And there's at least two that are very obvious. So most theologians said maybe that's the Pharaoh where his son was killed um, by the death angel as he passed through. So we have some ideas of of possibly which Pharaoh it is that's reigning. Um, I didn't know this, but there was at least one female Pharaoh who ruled during that time. And you'll be interested, she changed a lot of the uh, culture a little bit. She came up with the fake little goatee that came from her because she didn't have one because um, God made them male and female. We won't go there. Um, uh, so she did some things to change. But much of the study done, there, there are some 20 some odd dynasties of pharaohs that came during the pre-Joseph era all the way to the exodus of pharaoh. But the main point we see is in verse 8 and just look there as we get going here today. And now a new king arose, or a new pharaoh arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And that's, that's where we enter our story here, and we begin to look at some thoughts here. Let me give you a couple of thoughts. You have, you have your notes in front of you. We'll follow this along. A new chapter in the promise of God, 1 through 6. Look at verse 1 with me. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one with his Household. Now, Joseph's father was known as both, remember, Jacob and Israel. Okay? He had both those names. Those were given. Well, Jacob means to grasp the heel or means to be a deceiver. He deceives is actually how that was translated. And that's an important part because his brother Esau really understood that, didn't he? But near Bethel, God changed his name. Remember, on the way um, towards back, back towards the home base camp, there Jacob's name got changed. And he got changed to Israel, which really meant wrestle with God. But by implications, Israel meant he, he overcame. He overcame in that wrestling. So Jacob's descendants, when we look at this first verse, this, these descendants here, Jacob's descendants become known as the Israelites, the sons of the overcomer. You say, well, why is that important, Scott? Because they are not called Jacobites, sons of the deceiver. That's what, that's what would normally be. If, you left, if God doesn't change his name, they're sons of the deceivers. So you, so you see why one of the many reasons God changed his name. He's now sons of the overcomers. What a difference, isn't that? Now, it is indeed the Israelites that migrated to Egypt, and there, by the grace of God, they flourish just as God promised. Now, let me read you just some promises. You'll remember these. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Now, the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you 
and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's the seed of Christ he's speaking about. Chapter 15, just after what we believe to probably be the conversion of Abraham who believes by faith. Um, chapter 15, verse 13, and God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be stranger in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. This is, this is 1,500 years prior to Exodus chapter one. God gives precise, and notice the terms, they'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. And then verse 14, but I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. What detail. That's why the liberals don't like the Bible, because it's too detailed nobody can know this stuff yeah because they don't believe in the inspiration of the scriptures that god wrote them but you can see the detail of this so the descendants of abraham isaac and jacob are now in egypt just as god promised and they've been there now for quite some time haven't they as joseph had brought them into the land and there he settled them in the land of goshen now but these next six verses are, are, are they're they're designed for us to know Genesis and Exodus as a continual history. They want us to know that these books are really tightly linked together. So, so notice the, re, the review of the sons. Look at verse 2 through 3. The households here starts in verse 1, 2. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, and Gad, Gad and Asher. Now, so here's the sons. He, he's breaking these down. We just want to remind ourselves. These are the first set here in, in verse 2 uh, and 3 are the sons of Leah, Jacob's first wife. And, and they are interesting enough. They listed it in birth order. And then notice he comes to Benjamin, and that's the son of Rachel. Joseph's not mentioned because in verse 5 it tells you that he's already in Egypt. So it's, it's memories connecting this book. Um, from Genesis to Exodus. Verse 4, now we see the sons of Rachel's handmaiden, Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali. Notice that. And then the, then the verses split, and the second half of the verse are the sons of uh, Leah's maidservant, Zilpah, uh, Gad, and Asher. And then you get to verse 5, and it says, All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. So 70 was this complete number of Jacob's descendants now residing in Egypt. Uh, you'll remember if you do the count, you go, well, aren't we too short um, because of the death of, of uh, Ur and Onan? But they're replaced by the sons of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim. And they become the half-tribes uh, that we talked about at the end of Genesis. Now, look at verse 6. Very important verse. Joseph died and all of his brothers, and all of that generation. This is an extremely important verse, because even though God was faithful to, to keep his promises, he's a faithful God in making Israel this great nation that he promised Abraham in chapter 12, that fulfillment did not undo the promise of death. It did not undo that. There was only one that can undo that promise, and he isn't the seed of Judah here. Now notice, when you think back at this promise, just let me read you some verses for the sake of time. Genesis chapter 2, 16 through 17. Before the fall, God is giving instruction to Adam. He is to pass this on to his soon-to-be-created wife on this sixth day of creation. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat from it you will surely die. And die they did. They completely died spiritually and death began to proceed in their lives. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So sin is reigning. And I think verse 6 is a very important aspect. And Joseph knew it. Remember he said, when you go to, when you go to the promised land, when you go to Canaan, you check my bones with you. I'm going to die. He understood the curse of sin. But he also understood that God had a promise to raise him and to have him with him someday. And so he wanted his bones in the promised land. And so this is an important verse to help us understand that, that sin still reigns. Now, the promises of God were not limited by sin and power. Because I want you to go, well, well boy, God seems to be limited by sin and, and death. Or maybe even a great nation like Egypt. 
the great promises of all of all what God was going to do is all about the seed. And that's what I was talking about earlier, biblical theology. It is not about these men. They died. Paul, in uh, Acts chapter 13, as he's preaching to people uh, who certainly worship David as one of their patriarchs, he said, David's dead. And his bones are here with us. Christ is alive. And you see how easy it is for people to worship patriarchs or matriarchs or uh, religious people of some sort. They die. Sin takes them. Sin finishes them off. That's what happens. You and I will die if the Lord tarries. We will die. And it's because of sin. And the great thing is, if we know Christ, (laughs) death is not a second. We never see the second death. Death takes us to be with our Lord Jesus Christ. So, I don't want to paint this as that God can't overcome sin and death. He certainly does that in Christ. But the narrative is about this coming seed who will crush the head of Satan. He'll crush death. He'll beat even the fear of death. But over and over, the Old Testament Testament proves to us that man has a problem with no solution. He doesn't know what to do with death. And so God has to come in and show that he is, he is man is inability. He can't do it. I mean, he can't get through it. Genesis, we saw where Adam and Eve found themselves naked because their sin opened their eyes, and so they used fig leaves to cover themselves. And it's such a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, you kind of think, oh, that's kind of funny, isn't it? Well, it's really just true of man. This is how man tries to handle his sin. Well, that works really long, doesn't it? So God kills an animal and covers them. We see barren women throughout the scriptures that cannot produce children after a promise of a great nation. God has to do that. We see pride and rebellion by the boys and the sons of Jacob and God has to do things that that it left to man we would never have the seed. We see murder and sexual sin. We see slavery and repeated captivity of Israel. God has to do great things because man is constantly on a death march. He can overcome that. So left to themselves, man perishes in massive damnation. He is hopelessly inadequate to rescue himself. But the Trinity devised the plan long before the foundations of the world, and it was Jesus. And that's what's so beautiful to read through the Old Testament. It's Jesus. You can see him if you look, if you listen, if you study. You can see that seed coming. And today we're going to see where uh, Pharaoh, controlled completely by Satan, is trying to stamp out the seed. He's killing babies, but he's trying to stamp out the seed. So we'll see that as we go along. Number two, the promises of God were a problem for Pharaoh. (laughs) The promises of God were a problem for Pharaoh. Wicked wicked people, whether they know it or not, hate the promises of God, and they fight against God. Man has a long war against God, and Egypt's war was against God. Pharaoh's war was against God. They don't know it, but that's what they are fighting. And Satan always uses men and women to mount rebellions against God. It happens all the time. I was just reading the, just the last few chapters of Revelation the other day. And in chapter 19, this, this one more time, Satan is loose from the depths. He's turned loose, and he convinces people to fight God. You think you would learn. And he slays them with his breath. What an amazing thing. But here, it, he, these people are motivated by Satan. And, and, and Satan's certainly trying to stamp out the seed himself. So this still happens today. There's constant mounted attacks against God. We see it against the family. We see it in, in the gender wars. We, uh, we see it in politics. There's constantly attacks against God. And don't see them as anything else. I think too often you kind of t- we, we take those things personally. But they are attacks against God. Now, Acts chapter 7, turn there with me real quick. We'll come back here just in a moment. Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, you have Stephen here, um, just before his death, before he's murdered, he gives this marvelous sermon which reaccounts the history of Israel and the greatness of God, um, which 
all in turn is leading to the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about this is his revelation is he actually sees the Lord sit at, seated at the right hand of the throne. So he, he gives this recount of their historical background. But I want you to just see what, how he writes about the nation of Israel while they're captive. Look at chapter 7 with me, verse 11 and following. He's already worked his way down through several things, including Joseph being sold and um, how he is rescued and, and brought into the favor of the Pharaoh and stuff. But verse 11, now the famine came over Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and all the fathers could, uh, could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. And on the second visit, Joseph himself known to, made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all of his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. That's a discrepancy, isn't it, right? At least you think. Doubtlessly, what uh, um, Stephen is, is counting here is Joseph had extra sons and they're actually named in the record both in Genesis and in Chronicles and so he's done his homework he knows how many actual siblings and children uh, grandchildren there were verse 15 and Jacob went down to Egypt and there he and he and our fathers died that's right where we're at in the text from there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tombs which Abraham had purchased for the sum of money from the sons of Hamar in Shechem but as the time of the promise was approaching, which God assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. The point of my I want to read this is what we're studying in, in, in Exodus is remembered greatly in the New Testament. And Stephen goes on to give credit to God that he did all those things. And, but the whole goal was the coming of the son who is now, after you killed him, as he points to me, because you kill, whom you killed, now sits at the right hand of the father. So my point is when we study Exodus, we must remember that the whole aspect, of everything that's going on here is pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming despite evil men. Now, as you turn back to your text, this is, um, this is verse 7 that we begin to look at. Notice what's happening now with the nation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. And they multiplied and they became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. So here we are in the land of Goshen where Joseph had arranged for them to stay. And, and the Israelites are, are there and they're increasing. Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, just write down, look at later. When they come out, the Bible says there were 600 men. Men who were able to fight, that, that type of men. 600,000, excuse me, 600,000 men who came out of there. So if you do the math, and 600 guys with a wife apiece, um, if they had just one wife, we know that some of them had multiple. Um, if they had just one child, that's 1.8 million. Now, the Bible says they were prolific, and we'll see that. So, conservatively, say they had two children, which is actually, I mean, it just, the record shows that they were prolific in, in birthing. And then you're up to two, you're up to three million, you're, you're up to four and five million very quickly, all now in Egypt. It's astounding. It doesn't take long to do the numbers as they come out. So Exodus chapter 12 helps us understand that when it says that in Exodus 1 here that the land was filled with them. Notice that. The land was filled with them. Uh, it is not an exaggeration. They have been multiplying quickly. And so God's multiplied his people just like he promised. However, Israel's blessing was Pharaoh's problem. Look at verse 8. Now a new king, a new Pharaoh, rose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now the word to know is yada in the Hebrew. It's an interesting word. It, it's, it's translated in a lot of ways depending on tenses and endings and stuff that we do with it, that the, the record does with it. But it means to know, certainly, but it needs to acknowledge, but it also means even to consider so it could be translated that this new king, this new pharaoh, never even considered the God of Joseph. And though they would wipe out the records of prior pharaohs at times, they all knew what this God had done. They knew what Joseph had done and how God had used him. 
And so here, he sees no value in Joseph. He sees no value in the God of Joseph. And all he cares about was the fear of these Israelites in their presence to him. He feared their great numbers. He feared their, he feared their strength. He feared their ability to fight. He feared that they may ally with another nation. Notice that as we look in verse 9. He, he feared that they, they would lose this labor force that they had. And remember, when they came, they were Israelites, and so they were, they were shepherds, right? So I don't think probably much has changed in that, and they, they probably took care of the nation's livestock. When you take down a nation's livestock, you destroy a nation. You take out America's livestock herd, you destroy us. It's very, very heavily guarded. You probably don't know. If you're a rancher and you, own a, and you own a brand, you will often get letters from the Department of Interior about your cattle and are you keeping track of them. Because all it takes is mad cow disease and things like that. Terrorist thinking. So here they are. The nation of Israel is taking care of the nation, probably taking care of the nation's food in a lot of ways. They're, they're probably doing some building. Doubtlessly, they were used in the building industry as well and maybe many others. And Pharaoh fears the Israelites' freedom here. And all these fears culminate in verse 9, notice. And he said to his people, probably these are people around him that go, conform, uh, go perform his commands. Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we He's fearful. And that's one of the things that if you don't have God in your life, if you don't walk with Christ, fear is just devastating. My neighbor and I were talking, Rick, Rick's here somewhere. My neighbor and I were talking the other day uh, about fear-mongering that um, uh, the, the media uses. Well, well, fear is not of God. You realize that? God is to be feared and awe and greatly respected. But fear is not of God. Fear is of Satan. Sin produces fear. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2 that Christ came to defeat the devil and to stop his reign of fear. That's, that's what unbelievers have. They, have. they have tremendous fear. That's why there's political wars constantly going on. There's tremendous fear. And the way to stop it is to fear monger and, and to win, right? Cause fear mongering. And so here this great king, he's the superpower of the, of the world. He's, he's afraid of these little Israelites. And, and sin has caused them to be afraid. Sin will cause you to be afraid. I meet with too many people who are afraid of all kinds of things. And you have a God who splits seas. And the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, sin brings fear, and and we don't repent of sin. If we let sin stay in our life, you will be a fearful person. And and we see that. This man, this great man, this great Pharaoh, he's afraid. He's afraid of the truth. Sin just causes more sin and creates more fear. Look, think about Israel. They have no army, they have no weapons, they have no organization, but they have God's promises, and Pharaoh's afraid of them. They don't have anything, they're just working. They're a bunch of blue collar or, or less than that stiffs out working in the fields. Why is he afraid of them? Because of their numbers? 600,000 men against Egypt? Egypt is massive at this point. They own land far down into Canaan from selling grain for all those years, and yet they're afraid. He's afraid. The Pharaoh is coming at this without the true and living God. His gods are dead. But he has armies, he has people, he has power, and he is afraid. Wickedness will always bring fear. Number three, Pharaoh's solution against the promises of God was oppression. And I don't know if he knows all the promises of God, but remember, he's warring against God whether he knows it or not. And this is the depravity or the depraved nature of man. All of his solutions eventually fail and turn into sinfulness, right? Right? Uh, we see that all the time it, when the world tries to solve some kind of social issue. When they try to go after some kind of issue of the heart, where they try to fix something. I was just recently talking to some missionaries um, in the middle of Africa who deal with the AIDS epidemic there, and they began to tell me of, of why the United States keeps coming to their compound and keeps asking them why they have so much success. You know, our United States 
uh, medical, top medical people around the world trying to stop AIDS from spreading, all that disease, people that run around doing a lot, they keep coming to their compound and keep asking them, we don't get it. <laughs> we can't do what you're doing. What are you doing? And they keep telling them, we, we deal with the soul. You deal with the outside. So you fail over and over and over. But that's what man tries to do. He's, he's wicked to the core. And you and I would be too if it wasn't for the grace of God. So right becomes wrong, wrong becomes right. And depraved behavior goes crazy. Because what we're going to look at in the next few verses in just a little bit of time we have left is very disturbing what this man does to people. But I want to show you why. Go to Romans chapter 1. I want you to see what's going on in the heart of man. I don't want to read all of that text, but I want to read the last few verses of it. Romans chapter 1. Our nation, in some of our states, is trying to pass where they can kill a live baby at birth by sticking a knife into their spinal cord and killing them. That's exactly what his midwives were told to do. If you don't repent from sin, it will repeat over and over and over. Notice he, uh, Romans chapter 1. Verse 28, we'll drop down there. There's, there's all kinds of stuff about gender problems, right? <laughs> but verse 28, it says, Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, hmm, this Pharaoh did not acknowledge the, the, the God of Joseph. He didn't see fit to do that. He didn't know him, didn't consider him. So God gave them over to deprived minds to do what things which are not proper. How about killing babies? Killing babies, that's what we do. Our nation kills babies by the millions. Look at verse 29. But being filled with un all unrighteousness, wicked, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife. Man, this list of stuff, isn't it? Strife, deceased, malice. They are gossips. This is what happens when depraved mind runs. You go, how, how could a Pharaoh do this to these babies? We're doing it in our own county. <laughs> How can this happen? How can you watch the news and people kill their mother? So given over, they're slanders, they're haters of God, verse 30, they're insolent and arrogant and boastful, inventors of evil, they're disobedient to parents, where it all starts in rebellion. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinances of God, Pharaoh knew the ordinances of God, it was put on his heart at birth. He knew what was wrong, he knew what was right. Children believe in a God till you tell them long enough and loud enough that there is not one. They believe they're born that way. God gives them a knowledge of them. They're totally depraved. They're not saved when they're born. But God wrote on their heart, as he did ours, there's a knowledge of God. Notice, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Isn't that interesting? So why do you rob that house at night? Because you know it's wrong. Why'd you run when someone tried to stop you? Because you know it's wrong. See, it's on your heart. You know these things. And you know they're worthy of death. Wages of sin is death. God wrote that on the heart of man. But men get into power. They get into a place where they feel they're above the law. They're above God in some way. And they will take the life of another. But notice this last part, very disturbing. They not only do... They not only do the same, but also give heartily approval. The, the, the Greek word gives the idea of a standing applause to those who practice them. Man, that is happening so much in our country, isn't it? They're applauding godless movements. And if you stand up against it, you will be nailed. Athletes are finding this out. I mean, all kinds of people are realizing that their jobs are in peril if they stand against this. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, just real quick, because I, I, I want you to understand that Pharaoh is no different than us. If it wasn't for the grace of God, there go I. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. The last days started at Christ's ascension. We're just farther along in the, in the last days. 
We've got to understand that. There's a time frame here that's God's. We think, oh, we're in the last days. Now, we're in the last days when, as soon as he ascended in Acts chapter 1. We've been in the last days. We're just farther along. For men will be lovers of themselves, check. Lovers of money, check. Boastful, arrogant, revilers, check, check. Discipline at the parents, ooh, that one fell in there again, check. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. We call that divorce today. Malice gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding in all of this a form of godliness, although they deny its power, avoid such men. (laughs) This is the heart of man. And when I studied Pharaoh, I looked at him and I said, man, this guy was worshipped as a deity. And he has no problem committing all this stuff. And Scott, that would be you. That would be us. We would, we would fall into this. And you say, wow, no, I would never do that. You know what's in hell? Hitler, Pharaoh, the drunk, and the moralist. They're all there. The moralist is sitting right alongside those, or will someday. Probably not right along, because I think hell is very isolated. Black of blackness worm doesn't die, and so forth. But the Bible is very clear on that. And so I read this to you because as we go back and we finish out this text and we look briefly at what Pharaoh wants to do here, it is, it is treacherous. And, and yet, man is very capable of these things today. Back to Exodus. Pharaoh devises a plan. It's a kind of a three-tiered plan against God and his people. And you see it start in verse 10. First, it starts with slave labor. Look at verse 11. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor vig- vig- uh, vigorously. So Pharaoh appoints these slave masters, right, over the Israelites. And notice that this, this is an arranged of forced labor. He's, he's, what is he doing? He's taking away their freedom. The first step is take away their freedom, which thus defines slavery, right? It's the idea of forced labor means to bring uh, physical punishment by the owner of the slave in order to suppress the slavery in order to get the outcome that they want. So there is this vigorous labor. They're compelled and in the rest of the text, and as we go on in Exodus, you'll see they use this forced labor. So the first goal is send them in, organize the slaves, take away their freedom, cause them to be forced and punished so you can accomplish what you want. And one thing that is in the tombs of the pharaohs is paintings of this exact treatment. Notice verse 12. And they made them live lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and and add all kinds of labor in the field, and their labors uh, which they vigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was Shiprah, and the other's name was Pool. We'll get to that verse in a second. I got ahead of myself just a bit. Um, in fact, I skipped verse 12 for some reason. But the, the more they afflicted it, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out. And so the dread of the sons of Israel was on them. I'm sorry, I got a little ahead of myself because the clock's running on me. Verse 12 tells us that God sustains them. He multiplies them even with pressure. Verse 13, you see that he makes them slaves. He organizes uh, them and takes away their freedoms. Verse 14, he gives them hard work to do, work that is tremendously backbreaking when, while they have no more freedom. So when we talk, start talking about slavery, slavery and hatred go together. So when, when we get far they're in this and you watch these taskmasters beating these these Israelites and you see Moses deal with that and kills one of them there's this great hatred that comes with slavery and here's God's people in the midst of this and these people are treated worse than animals there's no labor laws of course none of this has happened but I guess as I thought about this Again, I think it's easy to go back and look at this and go, oh man, Pharaoh was a really bad guy. Egypt was really bad. But don't start pointing fingers at Egypt. I mean, two of the great marks against, as we see in this text, against the United States is slavery and abortion. I mean, we of all people, I mean, we we just take a minute and kind of look at that. And you begin to realize that at the center of uh, the controversy over states' rights was slavery. 
And, and so here, as I study this, I go, wow, he, he took away their freedoms. He pressed them into this labor. He, 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 he worked them to death, I mean, basically. But we basically did the same thing. It's a massive mark. And one of the things when you talk about slavery, and I don't want to labor on this too long, but I do want to make some comments here. Slavery is a rejection of Genesis 1. God made man in his own image. It is the rejection of Genesis 1. And, and let me go just a little further. Slavery is a rejection of God's missions. It, it, it crushed missions when slavery reigns. And so we as a church fight that, right? We, we reject those things. Because missions, missions looks at everyone needing Christ. Missions causes us to look at them and say, there go I, if it was not for the grace of God, I want to be involved in sharing the gospel in the Philippines or Spain or wherever our missionaries have been from lately. Uh, we want to be a part of that. We want to reach those people. There are, and then when we go, when we have Nilo and Emil sitting here, Emil's never been here before in his life. He lives in a very, very different culture than ours. He's sitting on our stage. We're feeding him food. We're interacting with him. He's every bit a brother of ours in every way. And yet, still today, racism reigns in so many areas. Church cannot be a part of this. It, 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 it rejects missions. I want you to think about that. When you hear of racism, realize that there is no goal of missions when you hear of those things. And we reject God's instructions of Genesis 1. So, brothers and sisters, if you're here and you've struggled with that and maybe had some poor thoughts go through your mind, repent of it. Repent of having a poor view of missions and seeing them equal, each and every person equal, made in the image of God. And then do, I love what the Bible does. When the Bible talks about being a thief and says, don't steal anymore, then what does it say? Go get a job. So if you struggle with racism, go get involved in missions. <laughs> say, Lord, I want to denounce my poor view that I've ever had on this, and now I'm going to go out and, and serve you and beg you to help me find people around the world that need Jesus Christ. I wish I could drag the whole church with me around the world in some of my travels and see people of every color and group and see them praise God together. What a joy uh, it is. Second plot of Pharaoh's, the second tier of his wicked plan was kill babies. Notice verse 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. Here's what comes Shipra and Pua in. And he said to them, when you are helping the Hebrew woman give birth, and you see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. So Pharaoh tells the Hebrew midwives to kill all the newborn babies, the male babies, and let the newborn baby girls live. And, and I love these two women. Uh, I think they represent a lot of women, uh, Shipra and Pua. Uh, the, these, are, these are godly women. <laughs> And I think there's so much here. We have women who fight for unborn children. Alpha pregnancy. Good pregnancy cities that focus on the word of God and teach the gals the gospel. War ministries. Those type of things. This is these women here. Pharaoh says when you see them sitting on the birth stool. The birth stool the term means two stones. So whatever imagery that brings to you. Knock yourself out. So at the time of birth. When this baby takes its first breath, kill it. It's a brutal, brutal. And think about that. If, if Pharaoh's command is carried out, it would be a massive blow to this baby nation. The depletion of men reduced any chance of an army. It would lessen the repopulation of the, the army. It would increase harm to women. People don't realize abortion actually brings such harm to women. Pharaoh's harem would doubtlessly grow because he would select the beauty out of he, uh, the Hebrews because there would be no men there. Abuse of women would be on the rise and soon the nation would be no more. Who is behind that? Look at verse 17. <laughs> 
love the but here, but the midwives feared God. You should mark that in your Bible. That's a beautiful statement. And they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but they let the boys live. Praise the Lord. And praise God for these women who stand up and do what's right according to God versus man. And you go, well, there's no law about that. Well, it's written on their hearts. They knew it was wrong. There was no Ten Commandments at that time, thou shalt not murder. They knew exactly that it was wrong, didn't they? And they would not participate in it. It's just fascinating. And think about the results of their choice, what they would do. We would not have Moses, we would not have Aaron, and more importantly, we would not have a Savior. Because doubtlessly, the line of Judah would have got cut off. Now, Pharaoh's plan was thwarted by God because of these godly women. Verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? And let the boys live. I mean, there's, there is, there's not an ounce of, it's like, this, you know, this is bad. Let them live. How can you, can you imagine that? Let them live? And yet that's exactly what's going on in our nation. Senators and people running for president of this country are fighting on this platform, Pharaoh's platform, on this issue. Pharaoh's just cold, isn't he? Well, these ladies were dedicated to obeying God rather than men. Say, well, verse 19, they they said the midwife said to Pharaoh, I mean, this is a scary thing. Most midwives were single. They were passed over by men often. They were barren women. That's, that's the, as they looked and studied on this. So they're standing before this great power, superpower of the world, and they say, well, look, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, we'll talk about that in a minute, they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can get there. <laughs> well, were they lying? Well, maybe they drugged their feet getting there. Or, doubtlessly, word got around, hey, here's what the Pharaoh's telling us to do. Don't call us. We'll call you. And third, I think they were like Peter in Acts chapter 5. They said, look, we must obey God rather than men, period. Sorry. I think that's really what they did. We must obey God rather than men. Notice, they take a little bit of jab at the Egyptian women. They said, they're not like your women. These are kind of the Kim Kardashian type of women, right? And listen. These gals are out working their tails off. These are strong gals. They're knocking out kids before they can get there. This is why I think there's more than 0.8 million going out. (laughs) God made them very fruitful in verse 12. They just multiplied. The more they worked them, the more they multiplied, the more they spread out. So I, I think there was a lot more than that. Verse 20 and 21. So God was good to the midwives. Hmm. And the people multiplied and they became very mighty. And because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. What a sweet blessing that God did for these Hebrew midwives. God gave them families of their own. They were often barren women and women had been passed over by men that fell into this, uh, la- this type of labor. But God blessed them with husbands and families and he truly is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God bless these women. However, the other great mark on America besides slavery is abortion. And as sad as it is that we read this, it's so true of us. It's so true. And, and every day, thousands of babies are eliminated from the wombs of women with no regard of God or life. But remember, the Bible says, I, I was talking to someone about this this week, trying to remind them to trust God. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, God records every deed and he will judge them accordingly. That's going to be a fearful day. Praise God, we won't see that. Verse 22, and we'll end with this. And let me say this before we, before I just finish this last point, and because some of the things I say in here are hard, aren't they? There could be somebody in here. I, I have no knowledge of anything. You could be a racist. You could, be, uh, you could have had an abortion or impregnated a woman to have her. We could go through that. 
I beg you to come to repentance with God. Maybe you have. Remember what Josh said, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, chapter 3, verse 12 says um, that God has forgiven us. So things are past. Paul says, look, I was a murderer. I, I, those things seem to pass. God chooses not to remember those. I'm pressing forward. Before I move on, I want you to know that. You may be here with any kind of difficulty or it's sin. Maybe it wasn't, maybe you're not a racist or you've had an abortion or something like that. But any sin, we must realize that we have a God who forgives us and that forgiveness causes us to live very differently. Causes us to live with the grace of God fully in our view and walking with him. Well, Pharaoh's got one more tear that he's trying to do to stop this nation, to See, wars against God. It's found in verse 22. Notice then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, saying, every son who is born, you are to cast him into denial, and every daughter you are to keep alive. So here he just moves to genocide, doesn't he? Kill off an entire ethnic population of Pharaoh, uh, that Pharaoh wants. I mean, he wants to kill off the entire population. Just wipe them out. He, notice the terms. Every Son. This is not selective, which is wrong as rain. This is a total annihilation of a race. This is exactly what Hitler tried to do. Isn't it interesting? If you don't deal with sin, it'll come back around. It's exactly what it does. And it isn't only national, it's personal. If we don't Deal with God and get right with God on sin. Turn to him and find that he is our only way we can have forgiveness through Jesus Christ alone. Your sin will repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. And it gets worse. And so we have a nation that appalled at Hitler. Do you know we love watching History Channel and watching the invasion of, of uh, um, Germany the other day. It's just appalling as they got into the concentration camps, what they found. And they, and they took the Germans who did nothing, and they made them walk through there, and the women threw up. And I mean, you know, and, and it's all on film, it's all here. And, and yet, look what we're doing little babies out of the womb. We're, we're trying to pass bills to kill them. Elderly, you're next, because you're a pain on the healthcare system. So they're coming after you. And if you have a child that you know is in the womb that is, is not, quote, normal, what, what were we reading? What nation that we read just the other day? They have eradicated uh, metal, metal retardation in that nation because they've aborted. They have none, and they're proud of it. This is in our world right now. There's pharaohs still ruling. The only hope is the gospel, people. That's why we sing it. We preach it. We train it down the halls. We don't talk about moralism and, you know, dare to be a Daniel. Dare to be the Daniel that loved Jesus coming. That's what we teach. We examine every song. We examine every mass passage. We, we examine our missionaries we support because we want the preaching of Christ. That's the only hope for a world that's killing babies. And everything else in Romans chapter 1. Amen? Lord, we're just getting started in Exodus. And we already see our nation in it. But you had your people living right in the squalor of sin. You've always had your people. You've always had a remnant. And you always strengthen them to live a gospel-centered life. For the Israelites, you taught them to love you. And certainly there was a remnant that did their work, even as a slave, for the glory of God. And they were great testimonies. We've seen two women in our text who loved you more than they wanted the Pharaoh's blessings. And they put their life on the line to save little children. And so, Lord, as we study the scriptures, we realize that you have a remnant of people who won't bow the knee to wickedness, but will follow you, Lord. And I pray that you would help us, Lord. Lord, it's easy to become a little prideful when we look at this. 
We go, well, we're not like Pharaoh. We're not like Egypt in that time. Lord, we, we don't do those things. And yet, Lord, we may view things. We may be involved with things in our mind. We know what's in our hearts, Lord. And so, Father, help us, as we've said so many times, and so many Christians down through the ages have said, preach the gospel to ourselves. This life is so short. It is but a breath. James calls it a vapor. But eternity is forever. And so, Lord, I pray that we as Christians here, particularly Riverbend Community Church, as we look at this word together, that we would be men, women, boys and girls, dedicated to the glory of Christ through the all-sufficient word of God. And you'll break us of our sins, Lord, when we want to be sinful children. You'll discipline us because you love us. And so help us, Lord. Help us to be these type of midwives that say, no, I I can't engage in that. I love my God too much. And so, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be faithful people because you are faithful. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.